Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is a podcast about slow living and I'm your host, Brooke McCallery, and this is episode 64. Glad you could join us. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, for showing up. <laughs> on time. <laughs> on time. And on budget. Excellent. Um, today... I sit and uh, I, I sat down, but let's say I sit down and chat with uh, <laughs> one half of the minimalists, Joshua Fields Milburn. Oh, what does one half of the minimalists mean? It's very, very small. <laughs> no. It's very minimal. I was trying to get you to talk about who the minimalists are. Oh, well, see, I'm not very good at picking up on those kind of no, signals. Okay. So um, let's pretend that I said something witty. Sure. Ha, ha, ha. And, and so the minimal, I'm pretty sure everyone listening to this has. Uh, heard of the minimalists, but that's a if if not, it's a couple of guys, Joshua and Ryan Nicodemus, who a few years ago, not about the same time that I started writing about slow living, they began writing about their personal journey towards living a minimal kind of life. Mm-hmm. Sort of a different take on it, I guess, because they're at the time they were two single guys, um, both divorced, I think, um, but both kind of on this. total journey of rediscovery and, you know, reinvention of themselves because Mm -hmm. they found that the American dream that they'd been working so hard to attain was actually not their dream at all. So Joshua and I get into that quite in depth in today's conversation, but the minimalists are that, that, you know, pairing of guys who continue to take the world by storm. They, you know, host massive tours around the world. Yeah, we saw them in when they were in Sydney. We did. We got to meet them, which was lovely. Fourteen. Um, it's really nice to put like a, a human face to emails and Twitter and, and yeah. whatnot. So that was really nice to be able to meet them face to face. But it was interesting. Um, Joshua and I spoke about that a little bit before we went on air and then uh, we touched on it while uh, in our interview. But he said that was just such an enormous undertaking. They basically gave up an entire year of their lives to do that. It was like something like 100 cities within a year. That's crazy. And these, I mean, the meetups went anywhere from five people to 1,000 people. Yeah. Um, and it just grew. The momentum picked up as they continued to travel around the I world. I remember the session that we were in. They had to do two they sessions did two. at the University of yeah, Sydney. Yeah, so it was well over... I think 1,500 people, something mm. like that. Which And it was such a, a cool atmosphere to be in, actually, because it was such a, a, a wide variety of people um, and everyone was so excited to be there and, and, you know, everyone just drinking in the idea of this different way of living. It was, yeah. it was really cool. I enjoyed it a lot. It was cool. Now, they've got a podcast as well, don't they? They do, actually, yes. They have The Minimalists podcast and they have their blog, which you can find at theminimalists.com. Uh, but they're also, and Joshua and I speak about this as well, releasing a documentary um, about minimalism in about, when this goes to air, it'll be about a month, but it's a staggered kind of release. They're right. hoping to bring it to Australia for a limited theatrical release in our spring. So I'll keep you guys updated on that as and when you know news comes in. And obviously that's something that I would totally recommend that everyone check out. Is it showing out. now anywhere? Not yet. Not yet. They're doing oh, in a, a month, t- you're saying? Yes, yes. They're doing a tour around um, the States and Canada right. showing the film, but then there's also community screenings and things. So I would just recommend go to minimalismfilm.com and you'll find out. Are they about- coming to Canmore in the next two weeks? I don't believe so. Oh, we'll, miss, we'll miss them. We'll then. miss them. They'll miss us, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, but it was a really good conversation. I mean, 
They present a very polished front, these guys. Yeah. And I mean that in a nice, like the nicest possible way. Yeah. But kind of, you know, unflappable. Like they've mm. got their, they've got their opinions. They're really articulate about them. Yeah. And it was really nice to just talk and go back to what Joshua felt like when he first started his process of simplifying and moving towards minimalism, the doubts and challenges that he faced because it's just normal. It's like everyone else. Yeah. I think often we look at people who look like they've got their business together and think, well, they don't know this daily, you know, minute struggle that I'm having, whereas they do because they've been through it. Anyone who's being authentic is absolutely had, has had that experience you know, themselves and they, they build off it. And that's what I really enjoyed talking to Joshua about as well. They're very cool dudes and I, I, they were very warm and and uh, and very when, – when I met them, they were mm. very warm and just very. genuine. Yeah. Genuine guys. Yeah. Which, I mean, I've got to say, I've done a handful of workshops. They did 100 in a year yeah. to maintain that level of like warmth oh. and genuine like, – truly genuine connection Thinking about over how, a year. How, that, Man, how much I'd that be, takes out of, out of you as I'd well. I'd be bedridden. Yeah. <laughs> I seriously yeah. would be. And like – that's not to do with the people that I'd meet. That's just to do with me and the t- like the the tax that it would have on me. On yeah. Um, but yeah, he did say that it's something that they probably won't repeat because it was too massive, too insane, massive. Yeah. Uh, but he said it was incredibly rewarding. So, yeah. I mean, I, I think really anyone listening to this is either familiar with the minimalist or will get so much out of this conversation. Good. That's excellent. It is excellent. Well done. <laughs> Thank good, you. Well done for you. Good episode 64. Good job. Jolly good show. Old mate. <laughs> now, if you'd like to, if you like this conversation and you'd like to support it more, please visit patreon.com forward slash slow mm-hmm. and you can donate to this good old podcast um, for as little as a dollar a month. You can help support the production values of this podcast podcast and um help it keep it going help it keep it help it keep it maybe that should be a t-shirt help it keep it podcast podcasts yeah all right <laughs> on that note we may have had a lunchtime beer show, no- <laughs> show notes to this episode can be found at slowyourhome.com forward slash or just a slash yeah, sixty-four. I don't want to. I don't want to bring that uh, that particular argument no, back. We had a. We've had quite we, a. It was a GIF slash GIF kind of argument. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, a mem dot meme. 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 I think you're the only person who doesn't say meme. <laughs> meme. It's a meme. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Enjoy the podcast. Joshua, how are you going? Outstanding. How are you? Super duper well. Incredibly well. It's um, lovely to talk to you. You as well. Thanks for having me. No, it's a pleasure. We got to meet very briefly at um, one of your your tour stops, I think, in 2014. So it's really nice to talk to you again. That was at the very end of a very long <laughs> year. Um, an amazing, huge growth experience. Um Ryan and I, we donated a year of our lives basically to hitting the road and uh, 
We went to eight countries, 119 events over the course of about 10 months. And man, I, I learned so much about other people. I learned a lot about other people's journeys. I learned a lot about myself as well and sort of my limitations through all of that. We we wrote a book called Everything That Remains. And that, that year, we kind of just used that as a vehicle to go out there and, and talk about this journey of a couple of suit and tie corporate guys to you know, becoming the minimalists and and how that journey started out and and where that took us and then sort of beyond that was was that tour and man it was it was amazing we we ended in australia so when when you and i met for the first time in person it was at the end of a a whirlwind of a year and so um i won't be doing that again <laughs> <laughs> but i'm i'm really grateful that that Ryan and I got to go out and have have that experience together, and uh, we're, we're going to actually be doing something like that again, but a, a radically uh, condensed, attenuated uh, uh, tour. We're, we're we're going to twelve and a half cities uh, this year with with our documentary, and so that'll be in the U.S. and Canada, and also I hope to get back into your neck of the woods um, this fall, most likely, or it would be your spring, I suppose. Um, and 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 find a way to bring the film over to to Australia to theaters there because it's it's an amazing experience on the big screen. I found like I've I've seen the film so many times <laughs> after going through and yeah, having yeah, edited and re-edited and going through uh, dozens of versions, but seeing it on the big screen for the first time was like a totally different experience for me. It was it was wonderful. So I hope to be able to bring that to to people. Uh, both here in the, in the States and in Canada and then, of course, overseas as well. I know. I mean, when you guys, if you do manage to come back, you're going to be very warmly received because that, that night that we met, I think you, um, I mean, you didn't sell tickets for money, but you, you did have people kind of sign up for tickets. And I think you sold out two sessions of uh, a massive theatre at the university. So I have <laughs> no doubt that you'll be very warmly received. Um, you know, we, we, we have more... We have more um, readers and listeners uh to our podcast um and readers at our website at theminimalists.com more people per capita in australia than anywhere else in the world and and so you know i don't know what it is but you and i were talking before this i don't know if it's like my weird southern accent or <laughs> ryan looks very extra american i don't know if that helps him or hurts um <laughs> but but no we we absolutely love it there we we spent a month almost a month in, in australia we went uh, both coasts we ended in perth and um, you know, it was amazing. We didn't expect it. Mm. Uh, the, the one you were at, uh, Sydney, I think we had 1,400 people. Yeah. Uh, Melbourne had, had another 1,200, 800 people in Perth. And, and you, th- these aren't you – know, when Ryan and I first started touring, we went out um, – uh, when was it? It was late 2011, about a year after we started The Minimalists. And, man, we <laughs> we show up in, in Knoxville, Tennessee. It was our – our fourth tour stop and there was no one there and and (laughs) like literally it was just me and ryan at this coffee shop and so we went to leave and as we're walking out the door this couple's walking and say hey you're the minimalists and we're like 
why yes we are <laughs> and and so we, we've had that experience and it's not the only time that we had two people show up we had two people show up at, at other events as well and and to see it grow from from this initial idea that we were really really excited when a dozen people would show up like it really f- felt like we had arrived to to having this message resonate with with thousands of people in person and, and millions of people online i've i've found that you know, it's not really scalable. It's 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 beautiful to think that wow, okay, fifty people are reading this or a hundred people, and I'm sure you, you you find this with your podcast. It's not like if you have a thousand people listen to it, and then all of a sudden you have two thousand people listen to it. It doesn't make you you know twice as happy or yes. twice as exciting. It's awesome that you get to contribute in 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 some way, and so. What Ryan and I have done over these last five years is look for, I guess, different vehicles to to communicate this thing because it was all a, a real beautiful accident. I always wanted to write fiction; that was that was my thing. And Ryan came to me with this idea for for this nonfiction website. We didn't even know it was called a blog at the time. Um, <laughs> You know, I thought I thought a blog was where like eighty-three-year-old women catalog pictures of their cats, <laughs> which and, it can and, be. <laughs> well, sure, well, those are the really popular blogs. That's right. Actually. Yeah, yeah. And and so, you know, we we started we started this blog, and we found that that you know some people got value from it. And I don't know about you, but when I when I get value from something, I. I tend to share it with the people mm-hmm. I care about most. I'll send it via email. You know, hey, you got to check out this link, or or you got to check out this podcast. I just just did that with my partner this morning, and and she was, you know, she's always. I, I always have to calm down. Like I'm always sharing things that add value to my life, and I know I have to put a filter on it because I'm. I love this. I love this. You have to check it out. And we found that a lot of people were were doing that, and and so you know. Our, that first month, we had 52 people visit our website, and and then over time, that 52 shared it with their friends and family, and you know, step parents or whoever, and that turned into 500, and then and then 5,000, and and now it's approaching 5 million people, and and you know, we we started a podcast, so it was another vehicle for us, and and uh, we've written three different books, uh, three completely different books about about sort of intentional living and, and the story behind what we're doing, but also some recipes that we have. And and now we've got this this documentary uh, called Minimalism, a documentary about the important things. And and that was another just another vehicle to try to communicate with with people and share different recipes of, of living a more intentional life. Mm. I mean, so you are like one half of the minimalists. Have you always been someone who identified like as a minimalist person? Did you have a minimalist aesthetic? Were you kind of more experiences over stuff or was there a time in your life that caused that shift for you? Uh, well, the average American household has about 300,000 items in it. And the only reason I bring that up is I probably had more than that. So I, I couldn't say that I identified as a minimalist. Right. I will tell you this, though. I, if you would have come over to my house, you wouldn't have been like, this guy's a hoarder. I was a very well-organized hoarder. And, and because, you know, I had a full basement full of stuff and all these bins and boxes and neatly catalog and an ordinal system for hiding away my clutter. And yeah, I had a living room and an entertainment room. And it was just me and my, my wife at the time. And, and we had um, 
just this huge house. It was three bedrooms, three bathrooms, full basement, all this space. And of course, whenever you get that much space, you try to find an excuse to, to fill the space. You're, st- you're doing what you're supposed to do. And so I'm 34 years old now. When I was um, 27, I'd say, I, I was kind of living the American dream, you know, the six-figure salary, the, the big corporate job. I was the director of operations for 150 retail stores, and um, I had luxury cars, the big house, the, the stereotypical American dream. Um, but then my, my mother died and my marriage ended, both in the same month. And and those two events sort of forced me to look around and, and start to question what had become my life's focus. And, and and what I realized is that I was so focused on, on so-called success and achievement, and I was especially focused on, on the accumulation of stuff. And I guess I was living the American dream, but, but realized at that point that it wasn't my dream. Mm-hmm. And it took getting everything I thought I wanted, everything that society told me that w- were the hallmarks of success. I it took getting all that to realize that everything I ever wanted wasn't actually what I wanted at all. And so I started to look around and 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 question the things in, in my life. And uh, I spent about eight months of my life uh, radically simplifying and, and and letting go of of the stuff. But it wasn't radical at first. It, it took getting some momentum, right? I mean, if you have 300,000 items, it's overwhelming to, to even know where to get started. And Absolutely. For me, I started with a question, you know, how might your life be better if you owned less? And, and by asking that question, I, I was able to, I was able to figure out what the benefits of minimalism were well before you know, cleaning out any of my walk-in closets. And I think that's important because I think we all sort of intrinsically know how to declutter. Mm-hmm. The decluttering part can be relatively easy. Um, the, the problem that we run into is the why to. What's the purpose behind the decluttering? And so by asking how might my life be better with less, I, I was able to identify what the benefits were for me. And I think they're different for everyone. Initially for me, it was regaining control of my finances because even though I made really good money, I spent even better money. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's a recipe for disaster, right? So I had massive amounts of debt. I had six figures worth of debt, even though I was making well over six figures a year. And I, I had all kinds of discontent. My health was out, out of whack. I weighed 80 pounds more than I weigh now. And, and I wasn't just unhealthy. I, I, I felt like crap. And my relationships were in shambles. And I didn't feel like I was growing. I didn't feel like I was contributing. So I realized I could regain control of, of my time and thus regain control of my life by uh, sort of embracing the, the simpler life and, and letting go of all the things I thought I needed and that led me to another question. Uh, I started looking around at all the, the stuff in my life and, and asking, uh, does this add value to my life? And, and by asking that question, I, I found that some of the stuff that I owned did add immense value to my life. It augmented my experiences. But the truth is that the vast majority of the things that I owned, they didn't add any value to my life at all. In fact, they got in the way of what was important, the mm-hmm. things that brought me purpose and joy and a sense of meaning, uh, a sense of fulfillment. Uh, they, got in way, they got in the way of, of 
well, they got in the way so much that I didn't even know what was important in my life. I didn't know what my values were. I didn't know what principles I should live by. Uh, I didn't necessarily have the right standards or expectations. And, and so I had to clear the clutter to start, you know, leading to other important questions about, you know, uh, who is the person I want to become and why have I given so much meaning to the stuff and what is my real definition of success? And I found that those were, were much more important questions than, uh, uh, than just like, well, how am I going to declutter my yeah. closet? Absolutely. I agree completely. Like we, we speak a lot about the idea of tapping into your why, which is exactly what you've just spoken about. Because I think once you, before you even start decluttering, before you touch your kitchen drawers, before you, you know, worry about your wardrobe, <clears throat> ask yourself, why is it that I want to make this change? What do I stand to gain? And when you've got that, when you've got that nailed down, you can use it as your foundation to make your decisions. And it just becomes that much um, simpler, not necessarily easier, but simpler to make the decisions that you need to make moving forward and have the conversations that you need to have moving forward. Um, yeah, so I couldn't agree with you more that that having that why in place before you really begin is is super, super you know, helpful and, and makes the process just that much sort of stronger and, and less inclined to backslide as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where you get the leverage that you need because, because having a, a tidy house might from some people may be enough leverage just by, by itself that that is, is all the leverage they need. But, but for most of us, that is the starting point for me. Simplifying my life was the initial bite at the apple that, that changed everything. I think that our our material possessions are a physical manifestation of what's going on inside us. So by by dealing with the the external, I was able to start dealing with what was going on inside me, whether that's you know, mental clutter or spiritual clutter or emotional clutter, internal clutter, uh, the the clutter that's going on inside myself uh, had manifested outwardly, and I, I needed to address the outward peace before I could look inward. Mm. And what, um, I mean, what challenges did you come up against? What was the, What was some of the hardest things that you faced as you moved through the process? I think the, at first everything was, was challenging because you don't have any momentum, right? You're yeah. looking at, looking at all of this stuff, it's overwhelming. And, and so I didn't know where to start. And I eventually just had to start asking that question. Does this add value to my life? And it turns out that most of the stuff that I had didn't. And I didn't realize it at the time. You think you need something. You can justify anything. In fact, I think a lot of the stuff that was hard for me up front are those just-in-case items, right? Every Everything that we, we you know have, oh, I'm going to use that just-in-case. I'm going to hold on to that just-in-case. And and we, we justify all of these things that we're holding on to over and over and over. And what I learned by by getting rid of some of those just-in-case items uh, was a few things. One is but by letting go of all of my just-in-case items, I was able to, to let go of, of all of these things that weren't ever going to, to actually bring me a sense of purpose. And, and I put a rule in place pretty early on. Uh, Ryan and I call it the, the 2020 rule because um, we, we were on our very first tour. And we, we, we had driven down to uh, Florida to um, – to, to start our tour. And when we got down there, we had 
just like two suitcases and a garment bag and two carry-on bags. And we're like, wait a minute, what are we doing? We're, we're the minimalists. Why, why did we pack so much? I didn't even know I owned this much stuff. And we, it turns out we like packed all of these just-in-case items. Oh, I'm going to bring uh, an extra pair of swimming trunks just in case, and I'm going to bring two pairs of workout shorts just in case this one gets – and all of a sudden it's like I've packed everything I own. And, and what I found is that Man, it's the easiest excuse in the world. And so I said, okay, how can we – next time we go out like this, how, how can we get, hit the road with the zero just-in-case items? We came up with a rule. Anything that you think you need just in case, you can replace for less than $20 and less than 20 minutes from where you are. And you may say, well, yeah, but I don't want to go around spending hundreds of dollars replacing just-in-case items. Well, I can tell you, Ryan and I made that rule up about five years ago. And we've had to use that rule between the two of us exactly five times uh, in the course of five years. So, so less than one time a year have I had to use that. But by letting go of those few just-in-case items, it let, it let me let go of thousands of just-in-case items I was never, ever, ever going to use. You know, we, we just hold on to it and say, I'm going to use this someday in some non-existent hypothetical future when the truth is that future is never going to come for well over 99% uh, of those things. And so the few things I've had to reacquire, you know, it's a hundred bucks for <laughs> between the two of us. Um, it, it was well worth that, you know, that, that investment of a hundred dollars or so. And so, uh, what, what I would encourage people to do when, when they're justifying some of the, the just in case things, I know that is, that is difficult to, to let go, but, but just think of that, that 2020 rule. And then I think after that, the thing that was most difficult for me to, to get rid of, to return to your question there, I, you know, the, the thing that was most difficult was my identity. You know, I was so mm-hmm. tied up in this job title. Um, I, as I mentioned, I was the director of operations for 150 retail stores, which a, I know is really ironic because of the whole minimalism thing and <laughs> a bunch of retail stores, but, but also, you know what? I, I was successful in a very narrow sense. I was successful on some, uh, societal norm, uh, sort of societal standards, I guess. And, uh, but I wasn't successful in the broader sense. And, and part of that was because I was so tied up in, into the, what that title was on my business card. In fact, I think it's the first thing that we do when we meet a new person. We often say, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone means anything bad by that. It's not like a gotcha question, but I think it's an incredibly pernicious question because really what we're – it's an expansive question when you think about it. If I say, what do you do? You might say, well, I, I drink water. I wear blue jeans. <laughs> I uh, travel to Canada. You know, I, There are these things that, that I do, but what we're really asking is where do you work? So I can assume how much money you make, mm-hmm. what you're, and, and where you stand next to me on the socioeconomic ladder, and, and I can compare you to me. And the reason we don't ask the question that way is because it would sound like a jerk. And so instead we say, what do you do? And then we recite the title that's on our business card. And, and then I say, what do you do? And, and you recite your, your title. And then we spend the next you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes chatting about things that we may or may not be passionate about. And so the way that I was able to untangle myself, untether myself from that identity was I, I had to let go of that question. I had to ask a different question. And it was very difficult at first because people look at you strangely. But when someone asked me what I did, what, what do you do? I would say, 
I'm really passionate about writing. Now, keep in mind, I didn't say I'm a writer because then you get the accusatory questions. If you say as as a noun, people say, "Well, who's your your publisher?" and "Have you read it? Have you have you published anything that I would have read?" And at the time, my answer was no. I was still in the corporate world. I, I hadn't published any books, but I had been writing for a good period of time. And and the truth was that I was passionate about writing. And so. When I would say that, I'd flip the question around to them. I'd say, what are you passionate about? And some people would say their, their job or, or they might say, I'm really passionate about uh, snowboarding or I'm passionate about you know, music or going to concerts or whatever it may be. And it totally changed the trajectory of our, of our conversations. Not, all of a sudden, we weren't talking about what we did to earn a paycheck because there's nothing wrong with earning money. We all have to pay the bills. But, but what I learned is that there was this other side of people that they had these passions, these desires, these interests, these expectations of life that didn't necessarily, uh, well, w- that wasn't necessarily reflected in in their you know everyday nine to five. It's really interesting to lay that bare, isn't it? When you kind of um, you're tied up in this idea of what success looks like, and then you make this realization that you know it on the outside it might look like a successful life but internally it's giving you zero joy and zero contentment i mean it's really confronting to have to come to that and then work out where you go from there um i do think it's interesting though i mean <clears throat> pardon me i had someone ask me recently what happens when your passions and your your work life they can't reconcile you know for example you as someone who's against um, against excess consumption, but you're having to work in a retail shop because you know you need to pay the bills. Like, how do you, how do you help people? How how would you reconcile that that sort of separate kind of you know ends of the spectrum um, while people are making these changes and these transitions to the kind of life they want to live? Yeah, I, I can only tell you what I would do for myself. Mm. Um, because I find that's the sort of the best thing to do. I'm not out proselytizing. I don't want to convert anyone to any particular lifestyle. But I I have found that it's helpful to, to share sort of what I've done or what I would do in certain certain circumstances. I think discontent comes when your short-term values uh, – I'm sorry, your short-term actions don't align with your long-term values. And and so that that's the scenario you're putting forth. And in fact, I went through that same exact thing. It was um, – uh, 2010, and um, I was still, you know, I'd, I'd simplified my life. It was a year or two after my mother had passed, and and uh, my marriage ended, and I spent, uh, you know, the eight months letting go of 90% of my stuff and continuing to simplify, and then starting to refocus my life on on my on my values, identifying what my values were, whether it was health or relationships or passion or growth and contribution. Those were, were the values that I uncovered. And, and I was still working this corporate job. I was working 70 or 80 hours a week. And it was you know, a typical uh, corporate America, uh, nose to the grindstone, work, 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 work. And it didn't, it no longer aligned with with my values. It no longer aligned with the person I wanted to become, the person who I aspired to be. In fact, I realized that through that process, as I was uncovering my values, that the people who I did aspire to be like, the the CEOs, the CFOs, the COOs uh, of uh, this corporation, you know, 
the closer I got to them, I realized that a lot of them were miserable. Mm -hmm. And you know what? If I worked my butt off for the next 15 to 20 years, I could be just as miserable as them. And then, of course, we tell ourselves this other lie that, well, of course, I will be different. Somehow I will transcend all of all of that. Even if I take the same exact path, I'm not going to get to the same destination. Well, that's crazy. Uh, and I, I realized that it was crazy and that if I continued down this path, that was actually scarier than taking a different path that I didn't know the outcome. Uh, and, and so I realized that, you know what, I needed to do something that was in line with, with my values. And so... I realize that there are times when we feel like, like we're stuck, but we all also have to, to realize that everything that we are carrying with us up to this point in life, everything that I'm carrying, I picked up at some point. And so I'm also the person who's in charge of putting that down. And, and it's not always easy, right? It certainly wasn't, it wasn't easy for me to decide to walk away from that. But there was a tipping point at some point. My, my boss came to me. It was uh, Christmas time. And um, he said, hey, we, after the, the holiday shopping season, we need to close uh, eight retail stores. And uh, we have to let go of 42 employees. And, you know, I had been through it before. I, I'd fired plenty of people and, and laid off other people and uh, dozens, if not hundreds of people over the years. And, and it never gets – it's never pleasurable, but, but it gets easier over time, I guess. And, and so he came to me and he said, here, I need you to put together a plan. You have two weeks. And the first quarter, we're going to let go of these 42 people, and we have to figure out what eight, eight, which eight stores to close, and I need your plan. And so, of course, I had done it before, so I knew the formula, and I, I just I went home and, and started you know, pulling up my spreadsheets, and, and, and I was just going to let the data speak for itself, right? And, and that wherever it, whatever it said I needed to do, who I needed to let go, what stores I needed to close because of profitability and performance, then – fine, I can do that. Well, as I started putting these numbers and names on spreadsheets, I realized something. I, I wasn't seeing the full picture. It was like, it was like seeing a rainbow in grayscale. And, and yes, these were names and numbers, and, but they weren't just names and numbers. These were real people with families and responsibilities and priorities and lives. These were real lives that were going to be influenced and affected by, by what I was, whatever decision I had to make. And so I, I put the plan together in two days and I turned it into my boss and he's like, wow, that's quick. Thank you. And when I turned it in, my, my first, my, my name was the first name on the list. Mm. And, and I said, look, this just doesn't align with, with who I am as a person anymore. And I didn't have a, a definitive plan, but I had spent the last year or so radically uh, uh, paying down debt and, and, and moving in the appropriate direction for my life. And I knew that I couldn't continue to go down that path because it wasn't who I wanted to be. And, and I could no longer justify being that person. And I know that's different for everyone. And I, I think there's nothing wrong with paying the bills. I think if you're doing something that you feel is 
against your beliefs, against your 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 standards or your values, then then there are other ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know when I was uh, paying when I, when I was paying off a lot of my debt, you know, I delivered pizza on the weekends sometimes or in the evenings just so I could pay off these extra credit cards, and I would make uh, you know a hundred dollars here, two hundred dollars there. Every cent that I had, it, it was to, to pay off this debt because I realized that debt was a huge anchor for me. And we all have these anchors in life. And in fact, we use it as a compliment in our society. Oh, he's a very anchored person. <laughs> but when you think about that, what does an anchor do? It keeps the ship at bay. It keeps it from roaming freely. And and I realized, yeah, I was a very anchored person. And I need to take that as an insult because I didn't even get to choose where I put those put those anchors. I I love that that analogy of the anchor because it's it's absolutely true. I mean, even now as I continue to let go of stuff, it's a physical freeing that you experience when you let go of things, you know. Um, and more than anything now, it's as our kids grow and they outgrow things, I'm more than happy to let them go. But you don't realize how much this stuff weighs on you until you let it go and how much it – uh, it can can tell you in which direction you need to to move because of the weight, you know. So I think the the idea of the anchor is wonderful because you know we're 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 told that being a grounded person, an anchored person, is what you're aiming for. I'm like, well, maybe you want to flow a little more than that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now I wanted to ask you: you moved um through this process, didn't you, to to Missoula? right yeah montana that's right so that's a quiet a kind of a quieter slower paced mountain sort of play in mountain town isn't it yeah yeah i think so you know we uh i grew up in in dayton ohio um which is sort of the birthplace of, of aviation and um you know, it's uh, it's a city, and it's very close to a bunch of other cities: uh, Cincinnati, Columbus, Indianapolis, uh, and, and Midwestern Rust Belt kind of city. And um, Ryan and I were um, on our first book tour, and we were driving back from uh, Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, up in Canada, and and we were driving back to Dayton, Ohio, which I love, by the way, I, I love the city of Dayton, but. We were driving through Montana, and it was just gorgeous. And so we said, you know, let's come out here to write our next book, which ended up being Everything That Remains. And and we moved to a cabin in the middle of nowhere in a Montana winter where it's you know, negative 28 degrees, uh, which I think is the same Celsius and Fahrenheit at that point. I don't think it really matters. It's just really it's freaking cold. cold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is really cold. And so um, it, was, it was great. We were on the side of the mountain and, and – uh, this cabin and it was great for four months but like it's not a place you want to stay in right. perpetuity <laughs> yeah. and uh, we found ourselves gravitating toward this uh really awesome community of of missoula montana it was just a lot of culture per capita is the way i think of it and um we ended up just moving here and, and we have uh we started a publishing company here and and it was uh you know it's uh, just a great town and it's not very big 67,000 people here it's the second largest city in in the state but um the the local apothem here is that you know, Missoula is 10 minutes from Montana cuz that's kind of kind of how it is right it's a nice little very dense town um with it feels like there's more than sixty-seven thousand people here, and but yeah, it is. It is more deliberate. It is more slower paced. Mm. 
Um, but but it's also it's also ten minutes from the sort of most beautiful scenery on earth. It's an amazing place. So, did you feel? Do you feel like that pull towards somewhere somewhere different um, was was tied to your simplification of life? You know, do you feel like those two things were intertwined? Not necessarily. No. I in fact, I didn't intend to to stay out here. And uh, Ryan has has a better answer for this. The, than me, he he often tells people that he, because uh, people ask, well, do you plan on going moving anywhere else after this? And and the answer is, uh, you know, I don't necessarily see myself being in Missoula, Montana, forever. But mm-hmm. I also don't see a reason why I would leave. Um, so I'm open to the possibility, and I think that's kind of where we were with with Dayton. Like it was great, and we loved being there. And we came out here for four months, and then just sort of ended up staying because it was pretty awesome. But uh, I'm I'm open to to just about anything. Mm. Yeah, I think I mean I I speak to a lot of people who do make the shift towards like a slower pace, not necessarily a specific city, but just a slower pace as they start to simplify their physical possessions. And then, you know, the flow and effect as so often we see it is it's health and it's spirituality and it's, you know, creativity and, and mental well-being. Uh, and then often people feel like they're drawn to either spending more time outdoors or spending more time in creative pursuits or, uh, you know, often moving, either having a tree change or moving somewhere a little more chilled out. So it's just, it's really interesting for me to to kind of dig into that a little bit when I speak to people who've made a move. You know, I, I think that one of the things to, to recommend sort of a more big city life would be, I think we're, we're shifting from a, a culture of ownership to a culture of access. Mm-hmm. And I could tell you the one thing about living in Montana is you don't have access to, to as many sort of, um, immediate amenities that you would elsewhere. Now, I think this is most pronounced in in the digital world. You know, it used to be that I'd have to own, you know, a thousand DVDs in order to have a movie collection. But now, if you have an internet connection, you have access to virtually unlimited films all the time. You no longer need to own those things. You don't have to possess the artifact to have access to it. And we're seeing that with with uh, music and with, with a whole bunch of different apps on your phone. And, and so having access is important, but but being being deliberate with that access is, is even more important because of that. And, and so I find that in uh, big cities like, uh, well, Los Angeles or San Francisco, are two great examples or, or uh, in on your side of the w- world if you're in Sydney or Melbourne like you have access to just about anything you want to go to whether it's a, a float tank or um, you know a really you know, a world-class gym or, or a Zen center or wherever you may want to be and having access to those things is awesome and and so uh, that's one thing you'll lose when you when you move to a, a, a smaller community or you move to uh, a place that is maybe a bit uh, a bit off the beaten path. There, there's a lot to recommend being here in, in Montana for sure, but um, you you may miss out on some access uh, to certain things as well. Mm. Yeah, now I've spoken to quite a few people who have actually made the shift to city living uh, as they've minimized and slowed down, and for those exact reasons, you know, they can walk to everything that they need. Um, the sharing economy is booming in in larger cities, whereas smaller communities maybe not quite as much. Uh, so it's it's just I find it really fascinating that people can basically find themselves in in the two 
opposite ends of the the city life spectrum and still find their pace their you know their groove in terms of living a slower life yeah i mean i think it's absolutely it's much easier to to uh be ignored in a city like new york or la if that's what you want if, if you i mean we, we moved to this that cabin in the middle of nowhere the closest town to us had 820 people in it there's one stoplight and 3400 square miles and and you know but everyone knew who, knew who we were like you go into town and <laughs> oh you're the two rider guys that you know and and it's like uh so 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 you you if if you're looking for that that's great but if you're looking for uh something maybe more quiet mm. then sometimes a, a big city can be a strangely a, a sort of paradoxical option there well, it offers you anonymity in amongst the millions you know um, <laughs> yes yeah. yeah so i mean you've spoken about your writing um do you did you find that once you simplified and you know made this shift that you had more time and passion and energy to write and to sit down and to actually spend time doing that? Or, you know, was it just something that was going to happen and burst forth from you anyway? <laughs> you know, I, I teach a writing class now and I, uh, I teach it online. And um, the the four most important words I've ever been told about writing is sit in the chair. Mm-hmm. And and these four words totally changed my perspective. It was about doing the work, like being willing to actually sit down every day and do it. For a very long time, I was an aspiring writer, and uh, that meant I didn't write very much. You know, I aspired every single day, but but I didn't get a whole lot of writing done. I got plenty of aspiring done, not a whole lot of writing. And uh, the, the truth is that I had to start making times, so even in the corporate world, when I was working 70, 80 hours a week, I would set my alarm an hour early. I'd get up every morning and start to write for an hour. And for me, I, I was just writing fiction. That's always what I wanted to write. I wanted to write novels, and, and that was my thing. And this minimalism thing was a really beautiful accident that, that I never intended on, on going down this path. But I just pivoted slightly and, and got to write about, about that journey in a, a unique way. And You know, I, I find that when I simplify my life, I did regain control of my time. And, and in fact, even now, like I, I do a lot to make sure that I protect my time. I, I don't schedule things in the mornings because I try to accomplish things, uh, three things in the morning, writing, exercise, and reading. And, um, I also throw in some meditation in there when I, when I first wake up. And, and, and so if I can accomplish at least two of those three things, I, I know I've set my day up for, for success. And um, writing for me is – it is a passion, but I think quite often we confuse passion for excitement. And and we, we, we'll get really excited about an idea like or a creative project or I really want to write a book or I really want to make a movie or I want to start this app or this website or whatever – we get really excited about it for a day or a week or a month or two months, but eventually you hit some sort of roadblock and you're like, oh, this is hard. <laughs> I guess I'm not passionate about it because I'm certainly not excited about it anymore. And I, I, what I learned about writing and cultivating that into a passion was much more about what happens on the other side of the drudgery. I had to be willing to drudge through the drudgery in order to 
to get the real payoff and, and, and the real excitement, the real joy, the real purpose from from what I was trying to, to communicate with the world. It wasn't from that initial excitement. The initial excitement's fine. You might need that spark to carry you forward a bit, but I would discourage people from confusing that initial excitement with true passion. Um, in fact, that, that advice we get all the time, we see it on, at, on college campus posters and on in self-help books and on blogs and social media. We hear it all the time. We hear people say, follow your passion. And, and I just think that's crappy advice. And, and the reason I think it's crappy advice is because it presupposes that you have a pre-existing passion. You were born to be a writer or an astronaut or a podcaster or a yoga teacher or an accountant or whatever. But the truth is, no, there are dozens, maybe hundreds of things that you could be passionate about. The key is to find a thing that aligns with your values, that aligns with your interests, your beliefs, your desires, your standards, your expectations, and cultivate that thing into a passion by being willing to put in the work, to drudge through the drudgery, push through the resistance, sit down and and be willing to accept the tedious and mundane parts of whatever that creative endeavor is, push through that, because that's when you're going to get the real payoff. And only then are you going to get the the real payoff of Mm. of that passion. Absolutely. I mean, anything, even the most fabulously exciting job becomes a job at some point. You know, even the things that you look at the the end result, you're like, that would have been the most fun thing ever to have been involved in. Like, absolutely. But it's also work, you know, and it's a matter of all those tiny steps that that come together to make, you know, the, the, like you said, the other side of it. Um, I guess that brings me kind of neatly into talking to you about your film, which I'm really, really excited to to sit down and watch when it's released. Can you talk to me a little bit about, um, I mean, I know you touched on it. You wanted to kind of try a different avenue for spreading this message of living an intentional life with less stuff. Um, what specifically drew you guys to, to film? Well, for the longest time, I... I just wanted to be an author. I just wanted to write books. I loved reading books. I loved writing. And so books, books, books. That's all I wanted to do. And then Ryan came to me with this idea to start a blog, and we did that. And and, and then we did end up writing nonfiction books, which was great for me. I, I published a novel, which was another you know, vehicle for to express my, my creativity. And we started a podcast recently, and that was a vehicle. And what I've learned over the years is that different people – like to communicate different ways. It's like speaking different dialects. If you're in, you know, if, if you're in the United States, I grew up on the Ohio Kentucky border, and as soon as you cross that river, um, you, you it's a totally different dialect when you get down to Kentucky, and and so it's polite to speak the, someone else's dialect. And what I learned is that, that all these different creative avenues were just different ways to communicate with people. Not everyone's going to read a book. In fact, uh, in the United States, it's uh, fewer than than 45% of, of adult males read at all, uh, read books at all, rather. And so it's, it's an unfortunate stat cause so, because that instantly cuts out you know, uh, half the men in our country. And, and my guess is anywhere in the Western world, that stat is probably fairly similar. But uh, a lot of those people will read um, – they'll read blogs or they'll watch YouTube videos or they'll listen to a podcast or certainly they'll watch a, a documentary that is that is well put together. And so 
about three years ago, we, we started this journey and to go out and, and share a bunch of different recipes because Ryan and I have shared our, our own recipe, and we certainly share that in, in the film as well. And that's sort of the, the thread that, that ties it all together. But we went out and we interviewed a bunch of different minimalists from uh, all walks of life, minimalist architects, minimalist designers and musicians and authors and artists and neuroscientists and neuropsychologists and economists and all of these different perspectives on how to um, apply simplicity to to create the most profound, most meaningful life that you have. I mean, we had people in there from, you know, minimalist families to former Wall Street brokers and and they're all saying the same thing. They're just saying it differently. You know, mm. I want to live the most meaningful life uh, that I can while I'm here. And, and that manifests differently. And so what we wanted to do was present all of these different recipes because they're certainly different, whether it's a solo entrepreneur like Colin Wright, who is you know, traveling the world and everything he owns fits into a backpack, or if it's Leo Babalta and him and his wife Eva and their six kids and the whole minimalist family and, and all the perspectives in between. And by sharing all of these different recipes, we, our hope is that uh, the viewer can tweeze out ingredients and create their own recipe, create their own flavor of minimalism and, and, and apply it to their own lives. And so that, that's why we wanted to, to present it in that way. And we were fortunate enough to get an amazing director. His name's Matt Diavella. And uh, this is his first feature-length film. He's done a bunch of commercial work in the past for you know, Reebok and Toyota and all, all these different places that it, you know he didn't feel like it was necessarily uh, what he you know he wasn't expressing his his creativity in the best way possible and creating the most meaningful piece of work he could. And so this was an amazing opportunity for him to to weave together something beautiful. And, and he certainly did that. It, the the film is uh, the the thing I'm most proud of everything that we've done. It's, mm. it's truly amazing. Everything from the music to the, to, to the, just the beauty of, of every frame. Uh, it, it is, it is really a work of art and we can really thank Matt for that. It is such a work of art. I mean, I've seen the trailer and it's just, it's stunning. You know, it's just stunning to look at. I mean, I'm really excited to see, see the full length, uh, film. And it's, I mean, I find what you're, you're saying there really interesting because, I've had lots of conversations recently about, you know, what does minimalism mean and why is it different to slow living and is it different to simplicity? And I honestly, I don't think that there is a huge difference because I think people are, are looking at their lives. They're looking at the kind of life they want to create that they're trying to intentionally carve out. And they're basically seeing the way to do that is by removing the excess, excess stuff, excess, um, you know, mental clutter, excess everything. It's not just to do with our physical belongings. And I had a really interesting conversation with a guest a couple of weeks ago called James Wallman. I'm sure you've, I think you, you guys were in Stuffocation, weren't you? You spoke with him for Stuffocation. Yeah, he actually, he was at our, our London, last time we were in London, he was at our London tour stop. He right. Was a great guy. Yeah, he's, he seems lovely. I mean, I've only spoken to him over, over Skype, but we had such an interesting conversation. He was talking about um, the idea of, of this way of living is it's coming to this point now where it's going to either cross the chasm into the mainstream or not 
Um, and he has a different way of kind of talking about it, which he thinks is is the issue. You know, he feels like it's minimalism has a branding problem. Um, and it's just, <laughs> you know, and as, as a trends forecaster and an ex-ad man, that kind of makes sense. But um, it was just fascinating to me to to hear him talk about this idea of it crossing over into the mainstream. And I think that's what you you're doing with your film. It's just opening it up to people who may not have otherwise been you know, been, been affected or impacted by this idea of, of living an intentional life. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the great hope from all this. I, I, I don't know whether or not it will accomplish that, but you know, we've, we've been really fortunate to, to, to gain uh, an audience of people who are willing to share this, this sort of idea. And I think this is the most approachable out of everything that we've done. Mm. This film really is because, and, and Brooke, I'll, I'll make sure we get you a, uh, a version of it before it comes out in theaters. It'll be in it'll be in theaters uh, this May, and Ryan and I'll be on the road with it then. And uh, we'll eventually have you know an online release, an overseas release, and all all that fun stuff too. So um, yeah, I'm I'm more than happy to to get you a copy of it and and uh, let you take a look at it. But I think it is the most accessible, and and hopefully it'll be one of those experiences where you, you can go to the film with someone or if you watch it at home or whatever you end up doing and it allows you to talk about it afterward and say, Hey, I'm not trying to, to, um, I'm, I'm not trying to push my lifestyle onto you, but this is going to open up some really important questions about us. What, what's meaningful to us as, as friends or as partners or as spouses or as siblings or as a mother daughter relationship and it allows people to talk about that in a way that is not judgmental, but it opens up the conversation that a lot of people may be afraid to have because they're afraid of being being judged. Mm. Well, I wish you the absolute best of luck because, I mean, I'm sure it's going to, to change lives as, as you guys have done for the last few years. But um, good luck with the, the film and its release and your much smaller uh, tour. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And um, yeah, I appreciate you talking to me. Thanks, Joshua. Absolutely. This has been another episode of the Slow Home Podcast. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe via iTunes and leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for listening. Jack Rabbit FM. For your ears. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.